God's wisdom is perfect. We don't always see that, and we're slow to see that. His wisdom is also inscrutable. How many of you know what that word means, inscrutable? Only a few. (laughs) Past finding out, cannot plumb a depth, cannot fully understand, beyond comprehension, inscrutable. And when you think you've gotten God figured out, you've gotten a false God. Right? That's right. And there's no reason to worship if there's no mystery. God is mysterious. And His ways are past finding out. But we see His wisdom displayed in the cross above all else. How He has worked out salvation for people like us. That took wisdom, didn't it? Amen. I hope you understand the gospel in those dimensions and your, your sense of the wonder of it will increase every day of your lives. I pray the same for myself. The things that the angels are blown away about in heaven. You smart as an angel? I don't think so. <laughs> and yet, they are just blown away at the works of God. As he saves his people. As God saves fools like me and you. The angels are just blown away at what he's doing. That's right, brothers and sisters. Well, we've been doing some topical messages here about how we as individuals and churches are to react and endure with the increasing corruption in our culture We're not all prophets of doom. I hope I don't sound like a prophet of doom. I shouldn't be. I'm supposed to be a preacher of the gospel, and that's good news, so I shouldn't sound like a prophet of doom. And one of the things we need to do is we need to be cautious regarding misplaced hope. And so this is our third message on this subject. How do we react to what's going on? Churches, and we ourselves have to be careful not to put our hope in the wrong places. And a large percentage of Americans' populace have moved off to a new foundation. And if we put our hope in other places, it's not going to work. And if we don't see the problem clearly, we'll tend to trust in the wrong therapies. If I can use that illustration. And as Christians, we really, really need to be clear on what the problem of humanity is and the problem of our society and the problem of our own lives. And if we don't see that clearly, we can trust in the wrong therapies. So much of our American populace has moved over to this new foundation, which I've referred to as secularism. And Romans 1.28 describes that very clearly. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. Anything to do with God is being strenuously removed from every area of knowledge, especially ethics and science. 
You know, President Obama is fine. He can say, well, you can worship. You Christians can get together and, and do your worship thing on your own, you know, whenever you want to, and that's just fine. But you better not show up. Now, he didn't say that. <laughs> you better not show up on Capitol Hill and bring your knowledge of God into this assembly. Okay? Now, that's secularism. Okay? He did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Whether it's knowledge of physics, or whether it's knowledge of ethics, or whether it's knowledge of government, whether it's knowledge of life or death, or medicine, whatever realm of knowledge. We don't want God involved. Because we are going to do it on our own. And we are smart. Okay, now that's secularism. And that's the problem. God gave them over to a debased mind. And when you read that, that doesn't just mean moral impurity. A debased mind is this autonomous mind. Do you see the man who considers himself wise in his own eyes, that's the debased mind. You understand? The debased mind is intellectual through and through. That intellectual autonomy is morally evil. It's Satan's lie in the garden. You will be like God. Knowing good and evil, and what that meant was you will autonomously, on your own, be able to determine what's right and what's wrong. That is the debased mind of Romans chapter 1. This intellectual arrogance and autonomy. I do not need any knowledge from God. There is no transcendent source of knowledge for mankind. That is a debased mind of the culture you are living in and that we are ministering in. And that's the foundation of secularism. So my first caution regarding misplaced hope related to civil legislation. Legislation cannot produce repentance. Legislation cannot change people's minds. Now, we're grateful for righteous legislation, and it's a common grace, and governments are to produce it. So don't misunderstand me that I'm saying we don't want righteous legislation. If you join this church in our prayer meetings, we pray about all the big legislative issues in this church and those that are in, before the Supreme Court. We pray about all of those and we, we ask God's mercy for righteous laws that govern our culture. And we elect lawmakers that we hope will seek God's wisdom and create such righteous laws. But legislation does not change people's minds. It doesn't lead anybody to repent. It's coercion. 
to keep things under control. That's what legislation is, and the government has the power of the sword to do that. But that's not going to change any hearts and minds. So we have to be clear on that as Christians and not put our hope that way. A second false hope, and this was more complicated and we worked through it last week, it relates to the law of God or the Mosaic law given to us in our Bibles. You know, you might think, if we just press God's law upon the culture, surely we can move our nation in the right direction. If we, you know, if we had a monarchy, we could do it. And if we had a great king, now when has that been tried before? Where? Israel. Exactly. If there was ever a test case, if you could take the Mosaic law and you had the power of the sword to enforce it, to generate a righteous, just society, it was the Israelite theocracy. How well did that turn out? And it didn't work. And lo and behold, when we get to the theologian of the law in the Bible, and who's that? Paul. Okay, the theologian of the law in your Bible is the ex-Pharisee Paul. <laughs> and we understand Paul's nuance, understanding of the law we come to realize the futility of trying to reform people, even your children, by simply pressing the Mosaic law upon them. And what we discover in Paul's theology of the law is that it actually stirs up sin. And if we press God's law upon the culture, no, it stirs up sin. Such thinking that pressing the Mosaic law works is a reflection of a naive understanding of being in the flesh. And Paul leads us through it there in Romans 7 very clearly. When people are not united to Christ, as described in Romans 6, and they do not have the Holy Spirit, as described in Romans 8, their sinful passions, quote, are aroused by the law to bear fruit to death. That's what Paul teaches. The law actually arouses sinful passions. The more it's pressed upon them, the more the heart stiffens and rebels against it. And Paul said, I once was alive apart from the law. And when the law came, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And what he means is sin revived in my heart when the commandment came. And the commandment, which was a result in life for me, resulted in death. That's what he said. And he works that whole thing out. That no, just pressing the law upon unregenerate hearts creates more sin. It does. And it's because of this evil syndrome, S-Y-N-D-R-O-M-E, is that sin uses the law to produce more sin. Sin takes that which is good and uses it to produce more sin. That's Paul's theology in Romans 7. 
So we have to think deeply about this as to how we think our culture is going to change. So enough on that. You can go over the message. And if you weren't here, I would really encourage you to go over that. I see Christians having a misplaced hope in this area. I wouldn't be speaking to you about it if I didn't see this tendency amongst believers to have a misplaced hope in the Mosaic Law and how that can be impressed upon an unregenerate populace and actually recover our culture. The way of escape of this SYN syndrome, the way of escape, Paul tells us, is to become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Romans 7.4 That's the way of escape. Well, I have one more area of misplaced hope that I desire you to consider and that that we have some caution against. Misplaced hope in reason. Enlightenment moralist. Okay? Those of you that know the history of philosophy, you kind of know what I mean by that phrase. Misplaced hope in reason. Now, reason is a very powerful tool. And sometimes reasoning can convince people to change course. But reason alone often fails to persuade people to leave a course of sin and folly. The problem here is not reason. The problem here is reason alone. (laughs) Right? So let's get that clear right from, from the start. We're not saying we shouldn't reason and reason's not a good thing. But when our hope is that reason alone is going to persuade men to leave a course of sin and folly, or reason alone is going to transform the American culture, we have a misplaced hope. I have an illustration of what I'm saying, and I'm going to read from a document published in 2008 by the Witherspoon Institute. And the document is titled, Marriage and the Public Good, Ten Principles. Quote, Too often the rational case, that's reason, correct? Reason, rationality. Too often the rational case for marriage is not made at all or not made very well. As scholars we are persuaded that the case for traditional marriage can be made and won. Okay? The case for traditional marriage can be made and won at the level of reason. The principles outlined below and the evidence and arguments offered on their behalf, are meant to make this case. Now, they believe they can make the case for traditional marriage alone on the basis of reason. Now, making the case obviously means they're going to win people over to their position. The case can be made and won 
One where? One in the minds and the hearts of the populace. To the importance of traditional marriage. They believed that. They said, we are persuaded. Now, the pamphlet sets forth an impressive amount of empirical data. What do I mean by that? Empirical data is that which you observe. Or you take a survey and you you gather up data. You know, how many children... What percentage of children raised in a traditional marriage and family uh, go to prison? What percentage of children raised in a single-parent family go to prison? Okay, that's empirical data. You see what I mean? That We ask all those kinds of questions and we examine, and that's empirical data. That's, that's the evidence. That's the facts. We're going to approach this in a scientific way, and so we've got to gather the empirical data. So the pamphlet sets forth an impressive amount of empirical data showing the good that comes to a culture by traditional marriage. And the bad cultural effects by the disintegration of traditional marriage and family. They refer to evidence and arguments. Okay, arguments meaning reasoning, and they're gonna and they're gonna reason on the basis of the evidence. Okay, the empirical data is the evidence. Now think with me for a few minutes about epistemology. A big word, some of you know it, some of you don't. But follow me here. This is all going to tie together. Think with me, um, epistemology is the study of how we know what we know. And how do we know that what we know is true? Okay, that's epistemology, the study of knowledge. How do we know things, and how do we know if they're true or not? Okay. Well, I believe that God has designed us to know things three ways. And they are each very important. How do we know things? Well, first, we know things by experience. Or we could call this evidence or experience. I know the sun rose this morning because I saw it. Correct? That's empirical knowledge. That's experience. Dan, did the sun rise? I know the sun rose this morning because I saw it over the superstition mountains. That's one way we get knowledge. Okay? Well, of course, that's pretty obvious. I know things by experience. Okay, that's one way I know things. Well, there's a second way I can know things. I can know things by reason. By arguments. There are 31 days in May. Tomorrow is the 31st. Therefore, tomorrow is the last day in May. I know that with absolute truth. If my premises are correct, if there really are 31 days in May, and if tomorrow is the 31st, I infallibly know tomorrow's the last day of May. What am I doing? I'm using reason to extend my knowledge. 
I can't experience the last day of May in the sense, but if I know those premises, I can extend my knowledge with reason. So that's the second way I know things. There's a third way a human being knows things, and it's by revelation. Another trustworthy mind reveals knowledge to me. That's the third way human beings know things. I know this statement isn't true, but it's part of my illustration. I was going to use Vic's Sunday school class, and he didn't have a class this morning. (laughs) And I was going to ask him how many kids were in your class before I got in here to preach this sermon. So just play along with me. Assume that Vic did teach his class, and Vic showed up here where we prayed together this morning, and I asked Vic how many kids were in your Sunday school class. So the third way I know things is by revelation. I know there were seven teenagers in Vic's class this morning because Vic told me. And Vic is trustworthy. So the third way we know things is by revelation. A trustworthy mind reveals knowledge to me. Those are the three ways we as human beings come to knowledge. And we need all three. Now think of human knowledge, what you can know, like a three-legged stool. It's a stool with three legs. Human knowledge. One of those legs is experience or evidence. Another leg on the stool is rationality and reasoning. And the third leg on the stool is revelation. That stool is stable with three legs. Now, why is it often the case that reason, backed up with great evidence, two legs on the stool? Reason, that's one of the legs. Reason, backed up with great evidence, that's the second leg. Why is it that often is the case that reason backed up with great evidence does not persuade people to change the course to what is morally superior. You understand the question? Think about your experience dealing with people. You show them all the evidence and you give them a bunch of reasons based on that why they should change course. And do they change course? Most of the time they don't. They don't change course. Why? What's going on? Think about that question. Why does not reason, based on argumentation, not anger, based on rational argument, why don't people simply change course? Now the authors of the pamphlet are persuaded that the case for traditional marriage can be made and won at the level of reason. There's one of the legs. The principles outlined and the evidence, leg number two, leg number one, reason, leg number two, the evidence, the empirical data, and arguments offered on their behalf are meant to make the case for traditional marriage. So back to that question, why is it often the case that reason backed up with great evidence does not persuade people 
to change course to what is morally superior. Because lust don't care about reasons. Lust don't care about reasons. The confidence that people will be persuaded and won by reason alone or reason backed up with some kind of evidence is hopelessly naive about human nature. We're back to the same place we were last week. In the flesh. In the flesh means you don't live rationally. Unbelievers do not live rationally because they are in the flesh. We are ruled as much, likely more, by our passions and not by reason. A popular song I grew up with went like this. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? That, that's it. We are ruled by passions. Our passions are often illogical and unreasonable, boarding on insanity. And our passions often won't take no for an answer. And any of you genuinely engaged in this warfare with sin know how experientially true this is of what I'm saying. Whatever that lust is for, it doesn't take no for an answer. Unless, by God's grace, you have the power of the Holy Spirit to put it to death. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 20 through 25. This is all played out in the, in the history of Israel. Jeremiah 2, let's see, 20 through 25, as God pleads with them. Verse 20, Jeremiah 2, For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds. He's talking about the exodus that the Lord delivered um, Abraham's descendants from slavery in the, in, the, in the land of Egypt, out of Egypt. I've, I've broken your yoke and burst, burst your bond. And you said, I will not transgress. They probably did say that. They probably did. I've many times said, I will not transgress. And what happens? God help me. I transgress. <laughs> We're talking about human beings here, folks. <laughs> We're talking about the human heart and where our hope really needs to be. And you said, I will not transgress when on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the prostitute. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me? into the degenerate plant of an alien vine. For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. How can you say, I am not polluted? 
I have not gone after the Baals. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift female donkey, breaking loose in her ways, a wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire. In her time of mating, who can turn her away? All those who seek her will not weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. Withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, there is no hope. No, for I have loved aliens and after them I will go. There. That's right. All that reasoning, no. The lust. That's why reason alone doesn't work. Lust don't care about reasons. There is a difference between reason and persuasion. Ah. You can reason with a person and your reasoning can be 100% flawless. That doesn't necessarily persuade the person. Persuasion means the person actually is moved to change the way they think and behave. That's persuasion. And guess what? You and I do not have the power to do that. Nor does the church have the power to do that. Nor does the civil magistrate have the power to do that. That's right. There is a difference between reason and persuasion. Just because your argument is rational does not mean it will persuade your hearers to change or repent, even on purely intellectual matters like evolution. The, the original theory of dar- mutations, okay, plus natural selection. Stephen Gould, one honest scientist in the 1980s, said that theory was dead. And he went off to try to find another. But how many even intellectually aren't willing to say that particular theory of origins really is scientifically dead? It is. Reason alone can't even persuade people intellectually. And just because evolutionists say that theory is dead doesn't mean they become believers. They're just off in search of another method. They're wedded to their naturalism and, you know, and, and we got punctuated equilibrium and now we got, you know, genetic material from another planet, you know. But at least those guys acknowledge this particular theory was dead. They managed to intellectually be rational regarding that one particular theory of origins. But most haven't even been able to do that. So, 
the Jewish philosopher said it correctly. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. You can't reason with a madman. But the people that you must evangelize are madmen. Back to the three-legged stool. The authors and signatories of this pamphlet have their hope in a stool with only two legs. They have reason and evidence. They have only two legs on their stool. The evidence is the data from the social and biological sciences. What's missing? Revelation is what's missing. Natural and special revelation. And we've talked about that enough so that you know what I'm talking about. They're missing leg number three. They are trying to win the argument for traditional marriage and what the creator of marriage has to say about it is not part of the strategy for winning the argument. Got it? We're going to win the argument about traditional marriage and what the creator of this thing we call traditional marriage has to say about it is not even part of the strategy of winning the argument. Hmm? Not good. Not if you're a Christian. Hopelessly flawed approach. Actually, this is not a believing Christian approach to preserving and transforming our culture. This is enlightenment autonomy. This is not good. This is not neutral. This is enlightenment human autonomy. What do you think God thinks about this approach? His foolishness is wiser than all of them put together and they won't consult Him. Wow. Don't confuse enlightenment morality with Christianity. You're making a grave mistake if you do that. This is enlightenment autonomy. We can do this without a word from God. Whether it be natural conscience, whether it be written word, or whether it be the incarnate word. The motto of the Enlightenment was, have courage to use your own understanding. Now, all of this said, their arguments from the social and biological sciences are impressive. And I think they do demonstrate the thesis to an unbiased mind. They do demonstrate the thesis that traditional marriage creates much public good. And if I were a Christian, and I am a Christian, I would use their data. But no way would I ever stop there. I would say there's a reason this data says this, that's more important. 
Because God makes this work. And God designed this to work. That's why it works. It doesn't work by chance. It works because it's designed to work that way. And we know who that God is because He sent His Son into your world to have a conversation with you. Right? And His Son is the light of the world. So then where should our hope be? Not in civil legislation, not in pressing of the Mosaic law, and not in reason alone. Our hope should be, our hope is that the darkness and the madness that is in people's hearts can be dispelled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing short of His power and grace delivers us from the intellectual slavery of secularism. We are in an intellectual slavery of secularism. We are in bondage to that type of sin in this culture. And it's only nothing short of Christ's power and grace that delivers us from this intellectual slavery of secularism. They are boasting of their two-legged stool. Nothing short of His power and grace can deliver us from the madness of our lust, which mock at reason and cry, Feed me! Feed me! The third leg of the stool, Revelation, is Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. When His light dawns on people's souls, they turn from darkness to light. They become persuaded. And suddenly all the right reasons become effective. When the church does what He calls her to do, we have every reason to hope. Turn to John chapter 17. And we'll spend a few more minutes on this hope and where our hope ought to be. John chapter 17, verse 14 through 18. We're sent on a very difficult mission. John seventeen fourteen. Jesus' high priestly prayer He's praying to the Father. I have given them, His disciples, your word. Stop there. What leg of the stool is that? Revelation. That's leg number three. And that's what the Gospel of John is all about. That's what the mission of Jesus is all about. I have given them your Father, your word. I've placed the Thoughts of the mind of God, I've placed it into their minds. That's what the Word of God does. It takes the thoughts that are in God's mind and it puts them in ours. And that's Jesus' mission. So that you and I can think the thoughts of God correctly. 
That's Jesus' mission. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Whoa. A father sent the son into the world to give this round of disciples his word, his mind. And now the Lord Jesus turns around and saying, I'm sending you on exactly the same mission. I'm sending you into this world to give them the word of God. The mind of my Father. That's your preeminent task. And that's where our hope lies. Jesus sends us into the world the way the Father sent Him. He is the revelation of the mind of the true God. He is the revelation of the unseen Father. He's the third leg on the stool. And we, the church, must restore that third leg. And we do it by faithfully preaching the gospel and the word of truth. That's how we do it. That's what the church is about. That does transform cultures. But don't get the order reversed. And there's our hope. Christ has been lighting up the world, hasn't he? Around this whole globe. Absolutely. Christ, through his church, has been lighting this world up for 2,000 years. Not by being ashamed of the message. Not by coddling arrogant human autonomy. It's disgusting when you see churches cave to the secularist and coddle their arrogant human autonomy instead of assaulting it and saying they are fools. There's more hope for a fool than a man who thinks he's wise in his own eyes. John 17, 18 through 20. We'll skip forward there just a bit. I'm sorry, I mean 20 through 21. Let's just read 18. As, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That's what the world needs to believe. 
that the Father sent this man, Jesus Christ. That's the center of our message. That's the center of our mission. That the world may believe that the Father sent His Son, who is Jesus, into this world. That's what we need to be talking about. Verse 21, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me. That's our hope. He is the light of the world. And we need to show people there is hope to get out of darkness whatever particular aspect of darkness you are wrestling with. So, keep your hope in the right place. Some of these questions are somewhat subtle. How the church is to navigate this particular culture at this particular time. And I do believe there are things we are facing that the church has never faced in the intellectual realm as we have been facing since the mid-20th century. And we're still working through that. So, it's not good when you preach two and three-quarters messages on where not to have your hope and only a quarter of a message on where to have your hope. But, um, uh, let's pray. I need to stop (laughs) for more reasons than one. (laughs) Lord, you are altogether glorious. Lord Jesus, the fact that you would pray to your Father like you do there in John 17 and that we get to listen in, how you've prayed for us sitting here this morning. We are among those who have believed in the word that came from those apostolic men. Lord, we are grateful. Lord, how do we grapple with you sending us into the world as your Father sent you? Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for John 16. We need Him. Lord, thank You that we're not saved by the law. We're not saved, Lord, by our government. We're not saved by our rationality and intellect. Father, Lord Jesus, we're saved by You and by You alone. Thank You. We pray in Your great name. Lord Jesus, amen.